Well, good morning, everyone. It is a delight to be with you this morning to open God's Word together. We're going to be looking at Psalm 139 together. If you have your Bibles, please open there with me. Psalm 139, pursuing the ultimate goal. Pursuing the ultimate goal. Approximately 400 years ago, a group of Protestant pastors and church leaders known as the Puritans convened an assembly in Scotland. Their goal was to hammer out the basics of the Christian faith, to decide the rudiments of Christianity, to boil down the teachings of Scripture into the keys of Christian living. The idea of convening an assembly was not new in history. There have been many down through the ages. Over the centuries, many have convened. Starting with the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, convened there to discuss the demands of the Old Covenant. The Council of Nicaea, about 400 years later than that, convened to discuss the deity of Christ, the extent of it. Many others over the years, over the centuries. More recently, the Chicago Council on Biblical Inerrancy in the 1980s to discuss what it meant to have an inerrant scripture. But this Scottish, Puritan, Protestant council was unique. Something has fallen down to us over the years, over the centuries, from this assembly. It is a key statement that has fallen down to us. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It boils down the ultimate purpose of our existence as believers in one crisp, succinct statement. The ultimate goal of every believer to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It has stood the test of time because it's biblical. It is what the Bible clearly teaches. You know the passages, the verses in Ephesians chapter 1 quite well. Ephesians 1 verses 5 and 6. He predestined us to be to the praise of his glory. Speaking of God the Father. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 12. Speaking of God the Son. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Drop down a couple of verses to verse 14. Speaking of God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Why are we to be to the praise of His glory? Why is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? You know the answer as well as I. It's because of what God has done for us. The Apostle Paul picks that up in Colossians chapter 1. As believers, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his dear son. This is dripping with emotional appeal. He has snatched us from the fires of eternal death and transferred us to the kingdom of his glorious son. It goes on in scripture, 2 Peter 1.3. 
He has provided everything necessary for life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. Ephesians chapter 1 again, verse 3. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But it's not just the chief end of man that is to accomplish this. It goes beyond mankind in Scripture. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 20 tells us this, that the beasts of the field will glorify me. The animal world will glorify me. The physical world, the physical universe. Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. And it's incessant. It never stops. The ultimate reason for everything that exists is the glory of God. The animal world will not fail to do so. The physical universe will not fail to do so. Read through Psalm 19. The only question that remains is this. Do you and I live to the praise of his glory? Do we incessantly, like the universe, declare the glory of God night and day? Now, a number of years ago, probably a decade or more, there was a Nissan commercial that read this way. Life is a journey. Enjoy the ride. As I thought about that, it is certainly true for the believer. As a Christian, for the Christian, the spiritual life is a marvelous journey. Romans 8, verse 22 Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If that is true, and it is, how how can we not enjoy the ride? But the practical question remains, If I, as a Christian, am to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, how am I going to achieve that? How can I make that a reality in my life? If that is the main thing, how am I going to keep it that way? How am I going to keep the main thing the main thing? This morning I would like to suggest four foundation stones on which to build that kind of a life for the believer. A life that seeks to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Without an understanding of these four truths given in Psalm 139, you and I will be forced to sputter along in the slow lane of our walk with the Lord. These principles are essential to glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Principles found in Psalm 139. If you've not opened there, please do open your Bibles to Psalm 139 because the psalm opens easily to us. 24 verses, four stanzas of six verses each. In the first four verses of each stanza, we have the description of the attributes of God. He takes on an attribute of God and he explains what it means. And then in the last two verses of each stanza, he becomes reflexive, reflective. And he begins to reflect on what that means in his own life and what it means for you and for me. 
The first four verses focus on his greatness, his attributes. And then in the last two verses, he falls into a mode of worship. He's enthralled in worship in light of what he has just spoken. His understanding of God, worshiping God's greatness. You see, the last two verses of each of these stanzas is applied theology. Applied theology. Applying these first four verses to life where you and I live. Inviting us to join with him in applying them to life. Before we look at the psalm, there's one more thing that we must note. It is a very personal psalm. First-person pronouns, if you count them up, there are approximately 48 first-person pronouns. I, me, and my. In reference to God, it is you and me. It is you. It's not him or he, but it is you. There's a closeness. There's an intimacy. A nearness. A closeness between the psalmist and the God he worships. The first stanza, the first of these four principles is this. Recognize God's preeminent knowledge about you. Recognize God's preeminent knowledge about you. Think about it for a moment. He knows everything, everything about you. He has full knowledge, complete knowledge of you and me. He's like a master detective. He's aware of every detail of my existence, your existence. It says there, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You've searched me. Literally, you've gone digging as one digs for precious metals. You're aware of every detail of my existence. Full investigation. Nothing left unturned. Perfect scrutiny, x-ray vision, nothing is left for chance. The writer to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 picks up on this thought when he said, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4.13 It's there. You and I are the object of his search. Notice the next three verses. Verse 2a. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. He knows our every action. It's missing in our English text, but it starts out in the Hebrew. You, you alone know these things. Very emphatic. Rest or motion. Every condition of life he knows. Do you remember every time you stood up and you sat down yesterday? Of course not. But yet God knows. God knew it. And saw it. He not only knows our actions, verse 2a, but second half of verse 2. He knows our thoughts. You understand my thought from afar. His searching intensifies. If walls could talk, he can read my mind, 
my motives, my intentions. And it says there, you understand my thought from afar, from afar. It's like a divine Google Earth. He can see your neighborhood. He can see your street. He can see your house. But this divine scrutiny goes further. He can see inside your house. He can see inside you. Jeremiah 23, verse 24. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him? Declares the Lord, do I not fill the heavens and the earth? The answer is, of course there is no place where you can hide. Job 22, verses 12 and 13. Is not God in the height of heaven? Look also at the distant stars, how high they are. And you say, what does God know? Come on, if I was in junior high, he would say, duh. (laughs) He knows our thoughts. Our thoughts, our motives, our intentions, the things we are thinking. No wonder the Apostle Paul exhorts us to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. To bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. You see, we think actions, we think words, but it is the thoughts that are prompting our words and our actions, and it is our thoughts that require obedience. Our thought life is so important. It's like that little poem, your mind is a garden, your thoughts are seeds. You can grow flowers or you can grow weeds. Our thought life. Our actions, he knows. He knows our thoughts. Thirdly, verse 3, he knows our paths or our ways. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. The first thing we we think when we read these verses is that God has his binoculars out. And he's checking us out. But that's not the case. He scrutinizes our paths before we walk them. He scrutinizes our pathways before we walk them. Every motion, every rest, as in verse 2, he's sifting our steps, our footsteps, through the divine sieve, as it were, to remove any obstacles or pitfalls before we walk it, before we travel it. Over the years, from time to time, I've had a few spots of skin cancer burned off. And finally, my doctor thought it was time for a little heavier treatment. And so he organized and authorized some cream to put all over my face. A special cream that seeks out any kind of cancer cells and destroys them. God is like that cancer cream. He seeks out any pitfalls before you and I walk through that path. Listen to what scripture says about that. You know it well, Psalm, uh, Proverbs sixteen nine: The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. 
Psalm 23, 3, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The word for paths there are ruts, tracks, and he guides me in those. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has taken you, but such is this common demand. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you are able to bear it. He knows our actions. He knows our thoughts. He knows our ways and paths and scrutinizes them to make sure that they contain no pitfalls beyond what you are able to bear. Verse 4, he knows our words. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Even if you didn't know what you were going to say, he does. And talk a lot, we do. The average person spends one-fifth of his or her life talking. According to scientists, one-fifth of your life or mine is spent talking. If all of the words were put into print, a single day's words would fill a 50-page book. A single day. In a year's lifetime, the average person's words would fill 132 books of 200 pages each. And if you want to throw Twitter in on that, the number of words posted on Twitter each day, each day, would fill a 10 million page book. We talk a lot. My future words and thoughts are known to him. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it all. Future thoughts, future words. Our unformed thoughts, our unformed words are like seeds, and their fruit is known in advance to the keeper of our hearts. Verses 1 through 4, the doctrine of God and his omniscience. He knows us well. Omniscience, theology. But now the psalmist becomes more reflective. In verses 5 and 6, we are continually encircled by God's knowledge. You've enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Here he begins to reflect. You've enclosed me. Literally, you've hemmed me in. This is all in a good sense because you notice in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. God has you and me as his children hemmed in. In the good sense. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me into green pastures and beside still waters. He's my leader. He goes ahead of me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of deep darkness, you are with me. He's our companion walking beside us. And then you go to verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. He goes behind us. He follows us. All our days, all our thoughts, all our ways are 
orchestrated by him. And he's there to lead and to guide us. It says there, you've laid your hand upon me. The word hand there is literally the word palm. Sometimes when we read, you laid a hand on me, we're thinking of the long arm of the law. Not so. Not so. He's laid his palm. It's a, it's a suggestion of blessing. It's used of Jacob when he blesses his grandsons. He put his palm on them. It's a gesture of blessing. As a believer, his hand of blessing is on me. and He orchestrates his plan for his glory and for our good. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful to me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Can't understand it. It's incomprehensible. He can only marvel at it. And we too, joined with the psalmist, only able to marvel at how he can know all of that about us. That is the very thought that causes the Apostle Paul to exclaim in his doxology at the end of chapter 11 of Romans. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways and unfathomable his judgments. Life is a wonderful journey. It's a journey in which God has outlined your pathways and mine. And thus he invites us this morning to embrace his knowledge of us. To enjoy the ride. And to glorify him forever. Recognize his preeminent knowledge about you. Verses 1 through 6. We come then to the second stanza. Rejoice in his personal presence with you. Verses 7 through 12. There's one reason that God knows everything about you. It's because he is always with you. We're tipped off to that in verse 1. Oh Lord. If you notice there, the word Lord is all capital letters. When it's lowercase letters, it's the word Adonai. Sometimes we sing that chorus with that in there. It means master or ruler. But here it is all capital letters. This is the Hebrew word Yahweh. And it means eternal existence, eternal presence. Or to put it another way, always is and always is there. He exists eternally and he's eternally present with us. And so in verse 7 we read, Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? I don't think David is trying to get away from God's scrutiny because that's a good thing. It's a rhetorical question. Expecting a negative answer, there is no way, no place I can go to get away from God. And he's comforted by the fact that God is always present. Who can separate us from the love of God? Romans 8 verse 35 tells us. And then it goes on to explain how there's no place, no way that we can be hidden from God's grace. Verse 7 is rhetorical. And then in verses 8 through 12, he begins to answer that rhetorical question. He imagines three areas in which escape from God might be possible from a human point of view. The first place is in verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Here we have vertical extremities, vertical extremities, up or down. It's a hypothetical supposition. He does not expect 
that he would do is the same as Elijah, Elijah did or as Enoch did where they didn't die but were taken up. I can go to the heavens or to Sheol. You are there. God is there. He sits enthroned in the heavens, Psalm 2 tells us. God is there in Sheol in the place of death. He's there as judge. Folly to think that people can escape from God's judgments or God's blessing. Amos chapter 9 verse 2 said, Though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. Though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. He is always there. I can't get away from him, up or down. Verse 9 and 10 has east or west in mind. If I take the wings of the dawn and if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. From vertical extremities to horizontal extremities. To flash from east as far as the west. If I send, excuse me, if I take the wings of dawn, that's east. And if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, from Israel, that is west, the Mediterranean Sea, from east to west. Jonah tried to do it. He went down to Joppa and got on a boat going to Tarshish. Yet God was there to lay hold of him. Vertical extremities, no escape. Horizontal extremities, no escape. We come to verses 11 and 12. There's one more area that the psalmist suggests is an area that one could get away from God or be hidden from God. And it's darkness, verses 11 to 12. If I say, surely darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Verse 11, surely darkness will overwhelm me. If you have marginal notes in your Bible, it will say bruise. That is the same word that is used in Genesis 3.15. He shall bruise of you the head and you shall bruise of him the heel. Bruise. Darkness will not harm me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of deep darkness, you are with me. There is no harm that can come to me because darkness is as light as daytime. Darkness cannot hide one from God. It is light to God. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is prayed that God might reveal to him the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And after that revelation is given to Daniel, Daniel breaks out and prays and he says this in verse 22 of Daniel 2. It is God who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells in him. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To do that, we must recognize his preeminent knowledge about us. We must rejoice in his personal presence with us. And we come to the third standard, verses 13 to 18. No wonder God knows us because he is always with us because he made us. He created us. Verse 13. 
For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Man's body is one of the most intimately or intricately designed systems in the universe. Scientists tell us that we have 200 billion brain cells. It's the electronic equivalent of every radio and TV station in the world. 20% of the calories you and I burn every day are burned up by the brain and all of those brain cells. Our five senses tell us some astonishing things. Scientists tell us that our nose can smell 50,000 different scents. Our taste buds can taste an ounce of salt in 100 gallons of water. The sense of touch can detect a pressure that depresses the skin one one one-thousandth of an inch on the skin, on the face. Ears tell us where a sound is coming from because it arrives at one ear just three one-thousandth of a second before it arrives at the other ear. Our five senses are marvelously made. Our organs are equally astounding. Our heart beats approximately 100,000 times every day. Our heart pumps 48 million gallons of blood in a lifetime through 60,000 miles of blood vessels, travels 168 million miles a day. Our lungs bring 20, breathe 23,000 times a day, inhaling 2,000 gallons of air every day. Our kidneys process over 400 gallons of blood every day. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, the first thing that we think about in the day in which we lived are, is abortion. We think about abortion when we read these verse, verses, and they are so apt for that topic. But that's not what David is writing about. I think it's far from his mind. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. The word wonderfully there speaks of being made differently or uniquely, distinctly. Each of you and me have been created with a unique DNA. There are no two humans alike. The adult body has 75 trillion cells. 75 trillion cells. Yet it all begins with two microscopic cells coming together. Verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Skillfully wrought is a word that's used elsewhere in scripture of embroidery or weaving, tapestry. The pattern of your DNA is an intricate structure. It serves to, as a template for building you, building your body. The divine weaver is secretly weaving an intricate, beautiful design that is being revealed in your lifetime. And it's not just he created cookie cutter, stamping out multiple people. 
Not mere creative power, but a power that shaped you exactly the way he wanted you to be. He fashioned you individually. He made you and me in the most perfect of ways. So that you and I could best glorify him and enjoy him forever. That leads us to verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. When as yet there was not one of them. Before David was born, God had marvelously planned his life. You have seen my unformed substance. The word unformed there means not unfolded. Not unfolded. Still folded up. Still rolled up. Probably speaks of life in the womb. All your days that were ordained. You and I cannot add a single day to our lives. We cannot take away a single day of our life apart from his divine orchestration. And furthermore, something that is elsewhere in the book of Psalms, not only the length of our days, but the events of our days. Not only the length, but the events of our days. Psalm 56, verse 8. You have taken account of my wonderings. You've put my tears in a bottle. Are they not in your book? The events of your life and mine, as with the psalmist. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, speaks of this as well. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus For good works which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Nothing provides more confidence, more encouragement, more hope than this. He has our days numbered from eternity past. We don't need to turn there, but Matthew chapter 10 verses 29 and 30 talks about seeing a sparrow fall and having the hairs of our head numbered. He has our days numbered from eternity past and we're not leaving a day early or a day late. Job 14 verse 5, Job picks up on this. Man's days are determined. The number of his months is with you and his limits you have sent So he cannot pass. Knowing that he has the events of your life and of mine. The events of the psalmist. The good works ordained. No wonder the psalmist explains or exclaims in verses 17 and 18. And here we get to the reflective part again. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them before If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. God knows all. And so he breaks out into a doxology, into worship. Worship because he is always present. Because he is always powerful. 
It's not a hardship at all. It's a most valuable asset. He alleviates our worry and our fears. He's made you and me exactly as he wished. In the best possible way he could make you, he has made you. And he has done so for his glory and for our good. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God, and how vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. And then he goes on and he says, when I awake, I am still with you. When I awake, I am still with you. Possibly a reference to David reciting these thoughts every morning, waking or sleeping. He goes to sleep reciting them and he wakes up reciting them. Or possibly he's thinking about being in God's presence at death. From birth to death, awaking in God's presence. When I awake, I am still with you. Whether in this life or the next, I am still with you. Nothing will separate me from the love of God. As a believer. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We must recognize his knowledge about us. Rejoice in his presence with us. Marvel at his power. Powerful creation of us. But there's one more stanza. And one more step. One more thing. To this incredible journey. And it requires a response from you and from me. Pursue God's perfect holiness in you. Pursue God's perfect holiness in you. Verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly. And your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred because they have become my enemies. To glorify God and to enjoy Him, we must pursue His holiness. Be holy, for I am holy. David here is taking this psalm to a whole new level for himself as well as for us. God's perfect knowledge and presence and power are complemented by his holiness. He can condone no sin. These men are enemies of God and thus they are enemies of David's as well and should be enemies of ours as well. No neutrality is permitted. There's no such thing as an agnostic. Either you love him or you hate him. He is so taken with God's holiness that David wants nothing to do with these evil men. Bad company always corrupts good morals. He says in verse 21, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those? Loathe means to be sickened by. Disgusted, grieved. 
Psalm 119, verse 158, I behold the treacherous and loathe them because they do not keep your word. Psalm 69, zeal for your house has consumed me. The reproaches of those that reproach you have fallen on me. Christ's words in Matthew. I hate them with the utmost hatred. Perfect hatred, full hatred, complete hatred. There's nothing that he likes about them. But I noticed, or I said earlier, that these required a response from you and from me. We're introduced to that in the words, the closing words of Job, in Job chapter 42. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah, when he saw the Lord, he says in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. I believe David's reaction here in Psalm 139 is the same. These verses are David's response to seeing God's holiness, seeing his attributes at work. He hates evildoers, but as he recounts their evil deeds, he realizes that he is not without sin either, that God will not overlook any thought or action, either of the wicked or the psalmist, that is contrary to his holiness. And after rehearsing the sins of others, he realizes that he is a sinful man as well. And thus he cries out in the last two verses, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you're like me, you look at this, these two verses and you say, Wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't he do this already? Chapter, one, verse, uh, chapter 139, verse 1. Search me, you have searched me and you have known me. Why is he repeating this here? I believe he is saying, God, you've already searched me. Now show me what you have found. Show me what you see. I want to know what you want to uh, know. I want to know my heart as you know it. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Ancient Egyptians thought and taught that their God weighed the heart after death. Not so with the true God. The psalmist here wants God to do it during his lifetime. Try me and know my thoughts. Job 23, verse 10, He knows the way that I take, and when he is tested or tried, it's the same word, I shall come forth as gold and see if there be any hurtful way in me 
anything that might lead to pain or hurt later, anything that might be on the pathway that would cause me to be overwhelmed. Purge me of anything that might be offensive to God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I would invite you this morning, I would challenge you this morning that this is a prayer that is very brave, but it is a prayer that you and I must pray as well. You see, we are too blind, spiritually deceived, to truly know our own heart. And thus we seek to reveal, we want to ask him to reveal to us what he sees. And notice the order here as well. That is very important. After, after the searching and the testing come leading. The dross has to be burned off. Those anxious thoughts that might make me vulnerable to sin. After the testing, searching and testing come leading. You see, we often pray. If you're like me, we often pray for leading. Would you lead and guide us in this or that? We plead for leading, but we do not plead for searching and testing. Perhaps the order is important. Leading follows a heart that is open to God's searching and testing. Verses 1 through 22 all too often represent us as believers. We know theology that God is sovereign. He's omniscient. He knows all. He's omnipresent. He's always with us. He's omnipotent. He created us. He created all things. We hate those who hate God. We know it all, if you will, in our minds. We know it all on paper. We embrace it in theory. But do we welcome his knowledge of us? Do we invite his findings Verses 23 to 24 is a prayer that calls each of us to account this morning. You and I still need to be searched and tried, scrutinized, examined, tested. We need to see ourselves in the searching headlights of God's omniscience. He knows more about you and me than we will ever know about ourselves the question this morning to you and to me is, are we willing to pray this prayer? Ultimately, it's not enough to know that he knows everything about us, that he's always with us, and that he created us. The door to glorifying God and enjoying him forever only opens through the prayer of verses 23 and 24. It may invite some pain. It may invite some surgery. But there's nothing to be afraid of. Because as his child, he loves you eternally. He knows what we need and he wants to help us. 
J.I. Packer sums it up very well. Listen as I read. He says this, I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. I know him because he first knew me and he continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there's no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. We have a wonderful, wonderful God who watches over us continually. Must we challenge ourselves? The answer is yes. Challenge ourselves to pray the prayer that the psalmist prayed. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your promises are so incredibly rich and wonderful. You continually provide for us by scrutinizing our pathway before we walk it. You watch over us from from afar, beforehand, beside us, and after us. You made each of us uniquely, distinctly, so that we might maximize our praise to you, our glorifying you in every way. Lead us in the way everlasting, but only after we have given to your searching and your trying, your testing us as well, that you might receive from our lips, from our thoughts, and from our ways the maximum glory that is deserved of you from each of us. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen.